Well, you can take your Bibles now and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 17. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 13 to 17. And in these verses we are talking this morning about suffering. About suffering. And many of us have gone through many different trials and, and, and difficulties and, and suffering, not only in our life, but maybe in the past year, maybe in the past few months, maybe in, even in the past week. Many of us have gone through different types of suffering, maybe financial suffering, um, uh, family suffering. All types of suffering, mental suffering, emotional suffering, all different types of suffering. And those types of suffering, they impact us in various different ways, doesn't it? When we go through suffering in our lives, it impacts us in in different ways like this. Sometimes we find it hard to sleep at night because of the suffering that we are going through. Sometimes our our eating is affected because of the suffering that we're going through. But I think what gets affected the most in our suffering is actually our thoughts, our thinking. Those Once you're going through great trials and difficulties, your thoughts start to come at you, don't they? The thoughts of anxiety, the thoughts of fear. The thoughts of despair, the the deep gloom of darkness, or even just that fog where you're not even able to think straight because of the suffering that happens in your life. It affects our thinking. And it becomes so hard for us to know what to do when I'm suffering. What should I do? And I believe that these verses help reorient our thinking when it comes to suffering. I believe what Peter writes in this passage is for those of us who are struggling with very real suffering even right now. And yes, he is talking about a specific suffering at the persecution of your enemies. But I think what he says has application for all suffering that we are experiencing in our lives. And so we are called, I think, in this passage to reorient our thinking when it comes to suffering. Let's listen to these verses and what the Lord would have to say to us. Beginning of verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. 
And so he wants us here, as he talks about this battle again between good and evil, in that battle there is suffering for the Christian. And so he is calling upon the Christian, listen, you need to change your thinking. And what should we think about when we're going through suffering? Firstly, I I think he would have us think about our future blessing. It is so easy to get caught up with what is just right in front of you when you're going through pain and difficulty. It's it's so easy to just get caught up in the day-to-day, moment by moment. But what he is calling us to do is focus upon the future blessing that is to come. I want you to think about those things. But before he gets there, listen to what he asks. He asks a very intriguing question, a very thought-provoking question. Here is what he says. Now, who is there to harm you? Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Who is? It's kind of like this rhetorical question. If you are passionate about doing good things and saying good things, he asks the question, who is there to harm you? And of course, then the answer would be, in this world, generally, you might say, well, there's no one. That's the answer he expects. And so you would you would think that to be logically true. Think about what we were talking about next week, last week. If someone has a passion for for good in this world, if they have a passion to react in good ways, if they have a passion for good speech and, and good actions, then who would harm that person? Who would choose to come up against that person? And in general, you could probably say no one. But it is a thought-provoking question for the Christian. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? The Christian might answer, well, (laughs) there's plenty to harm me there if I am zealous for doing good. Why? Because what is one of the greatest goods that the Christian can do? One of the greatest goods that the Christian can do is proclaim the good news of the gospel. That is one of the greatest goods that we can do as a Christian, is proclaim the good news of the gospel. Now, then ask the question, who is there to harm you if you are ready to do that good? I would say loads of people. And then also, as Christians, we want to see people practice good ethics. And so we want to speak for the sanctity of life, the protection of the unborn. That is a great good that we can do on this planet. But then ask Peter's question, who is there to harm you if you are eager for doing that good, for speaking for the lives of the unborn? And I would say everybody. So the answer to his question, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing good? Actually, if you think about it, it's quite thought provoking. You mightn't say no one. You might actually say, well, everyone. And that's why I think he says what he says next. He doesn't just ask that question. But he gives a clarification that we need as Christians. Listen to his clarification in verse 14. Very important that he says this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. 
And so what he's saying there is, if the Christian comes back to his question, who's there to harm you? You say everyone. Then he gives this clarification. But even if someone is to harm you, even if you were to suffer for doing good or for righteousness sake, what does he say? You will be blessed. You will be blessed. And what he is encouraging the believer to think about is what? The future blessing. Remember the words of of Jesus in in Matthew 5. In the Sermon of the Mount. We, We looked at it briefly last week. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. What Jesus is saying to you is you are blessed when others persecute you. Why? Because your reward, your future reward in heaven is great. And so what the Christian needs to do in the time of persecution is think upon future blessing. When you are suffering, you are called to think upon this future blessing day by day. Sometimes we just get caught up in the daily drum of life. Forget to think about our future blessing to come. We need to meditate upon the future. John Calvin, a a great theologian, wrote this, this big book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And many of people would say, oh, you know, he's just this high level theologian in the past that we can't access or or whatever or, or think through. He has an entire chapter in that book called Meditation on the Future Life. That's what Christians are to do. Think about this future blessing when you're going through present suffering. Do you do that, believer? Because I think that is a practice that we often neglect. I think we often forget to think about our future blessing that is to come. So let me encourage you this morning, right now, let us think about our future blessing. And I want to read to you one part of one verse as we think about this future blessing. Just one phrase. It is this about the future blessing that is to come for everyone who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. This is part of your future blessing. Revelation. 21 verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's part of the future blessing that I want you to think about this morning. We could think about loads of things, but just that for now. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is quite a telling verse. And let me tell you why that is a telling verse for us. It tells us this. In this world, there will be tears. God is not going to keep us away from tears in this world. But the future blessing is 
one day all those tears will be wiped away. And as a father, I realize this with my children. I will never be able to, as a earthly father, I will never be able to stop the tears of my children. But I can always bend down and wipe them away. But here's the difference. My wipe as an earthly father is temporary. His wipe. As a heavenly father is eternal. And that is the great difference. (laughs) One day the tears you shed right now will be wiped away eternally. And that is what we are to think about. That's why he says in this verse, even if you are to go through present suffering, you will be blessed. There is coming a day of blessing, a day of wiping away of all of our tears. And so I think this scripture would call us to change our thinking. Not that we don't have tears. Yes, we will. But to continually focus upon the day. Where all that is done. And so what I'm going to do actually this week, I'm going to send you a a couple of articles this week on heaven that talk about the reality of our hope that is in heaven. And hopefully these will give you some verses and some things to meditate on so you can pull out this armor daily and focus on the future blessings. When we are going through suffering, not only should we think about the future blessing, but I think he calls us to think about Christ's holiness. Look at, look at verse 14. He says this in the second half of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. And so in that you have you have two commands in that verse. Do not fear. Do not be afraid of them and honor in your heart. Christ is holy. And when we are suffering, one of the things that helps us in our suffering is to think about to set Christ as holy in our hearts. And you might say, what does Christ's holiness have to do with resolving my suffering? Well, let us take it just step by step. The first command he gives us is do not fear. Have no fear of them. Do not be afraid. Do not be troubled. Here's the problem with that command. Often as people, we are afraid of people. We are afraid of people. And often we are afraid of what people will think of us. And so that's what drives us into people pleasing. And you might say, well, I'm not really afraid of people. You're going to have to prove that. Well, you can ask some questions to figure out for yourself. Are you afraid of people and what they think? One of the questions could be this. Are you afraid of saying no? Because if you need to always say yes to everyone who asks you everything, maybe that is proof to yourself 
they are afraid of what they might think. Are you afraid of saying no to people? The second thing I think we could look at here, question we could look at here, is are you afraid of disappointing people? And it relates to that, doesn't it? Are you afraid of letting people down? That might show that you are afraid of people. Do you hate being honest with people? Telling them how life really is. Because you're afraid if they are to see what life is really like and and what your life is, is really like, then they would judge you or disown you. If the answer is yes to those questions, then you are probably afraid of people and what they think. But actually, as I think of our church and our small little group that we have, as I think of the people that we have, I actually think the answer is no to those questions. Many of us that we have in our church aren't really afraid of what people think. We have no problem maybe saying no, some of us. But I think all of us are afraid of what people might do. All of us are afraid of what people might do to us. And you say, there's no way, there's no way I'd be afraid of what people, I don't care what people think about me, and I don't care about what people would do to me. I don't care. And maybe you might say that. But that's exactly what the writer of this letter would have said as well. His name is Peter. Do you remember him, Peter? You're going to deny me, Peter. There's no way I'm going to deny you. I'm with you till the end, Peter would say. But then it came to that time when he was standing there and that little girl comes up to him and says, weren't you with Jesus? Aren't you one of the disciples? He says, no. Then he's standing by the fire and all these people start recognizing him and he says, no. No. Three times he says no. Why? Because he was afraid of what they would do to him. And now he is saying to us, do not be afraid of what they will do to you. Don't be afraid. And that has great power coming from a guy like Peter. Coming from a guy who's experienced all that he's experienced. So what changed him from the guy who said, no, 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 to now the guy who says, do not fear any of them. What changed him? What changed him was the sight of the resurrected Christ. That was a game changer for Peter. In light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he is now saying, we have no one to fear. Because if they are to harm me, It is actually for my gain. Because the moment I die is the day I'm in paradise. So do not fear them. Do not fear what they do to you. And in Asia Minor, that's very specific in relation to the persecution. Do not fear them who are coming against you, either the government or or masters or, or family members or whatever. Do not fear what they are to do to you. And I think that is the same for us. Do not fear what they are going to do to you. 
many people I know have lost family members because they've decided, I'm going to follow Jesus. And the family has essentially disowned them. Marriages have, have broken up because of this reality. The husband or the wife doesn't believe and trust in Jesus. And so they say, enough of your Jesus. Don't be afraid of what they could do to you. Gets very real, doesn't it? We know people who've lost their jobs because they've made stands for Jesus. And it could be the temptation that we would just toe the line in our workplace and not stand for Jesus just to keep our job. But Peter would say to you, do not be afraid of what they're going to do to you. Don't be afraid. As a group, as a church, we're, we're thinking right now of our, of our charity status. We have to get charity status. But the reality is, in our future, I think there is coming a day where we will lose that status. I think that is true. I think there's coming a day where that will pro- probably happen. Do not be afraid of what they will do to you. And instead, what does Peter say? He says, instead... In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And so you have a choice. Either I am going to be afraid of man or I am going to see Christ my king as holy before me. And that is what we should do. And that changes our thinking. Once we see him as holy, we are not going to be afraid of what anybody can do. In fact, that is what Igman read to us this morning from Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. These are the words of Jesus. He says this, do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not fear what this world can do to you. Have a reverent awe and fear for the holiness of Christ. And so here's what you're to think about when you're going through your suffering. Think about your future blessing and hope. Think about the holiness of Christ. And also he would say thirdly, think about your answers. Listen to what he says halfway through verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, there's a lot in those verses, and we're not going to go through everything in those verses. But here's what I want to do. I want to ask some questions about the answers that we're going to give. I want to ask questions about the answers. The first question I want to ask about the answers that we're to think about is this. What types of answers are we to give? And in verse 15... He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is within you. We are to always be prepared to make defense 
for our faith. Now, when people look at these verses, the word defense there is a word called apologia, which is where we get our word apologetics from. That is the the act of defending the faith. Right. And so people in apologetics, in, in the discipline of apologetics, I don't want you to get thrown off by that word. But in the discipline of apologetics, here's what they're doing. They're basically trying to defend the faith, answer the difficult questions that people have that are posed against the uh, the faith that we have. So how can you prove that God created the world in in seven days? Um, how How can a good God allow evil things to happen? Um. How did the resurrection happen? Prove it to me. That someone raised from the dead, prove that to me. Is the Bible reliable or is it just handed down myths through the generations? Prove that to me. Apologetics seeks to answer all those difficult questions and defend the faith. That's what apologetics does. And so people will take this verse in many ways rightly. As a way to say, look, we're to always, all of us, always be prepared to make a defense for the hope. Give a reason. We need to be ready in our armor for these answers. And here's what I'd say to that. It is smart and good for us to think about some answers to these questions that people might legitimately have. They're legitimate and they're real questions. And we should be ready in some way as Christians to try and give some real answers. But the reality is most of us won't be able to give all of these answers to all of these questions. So how could this verse be saying to me, I need to always be prepared. I always feel underprepared. I always feel like I don't have an answer. And in some ways, maybe we should get ourselves more prepared. But is that what this verse is calling us to do? Are we to always be prepared to give those types of answers to those types of questions? I'm not sure that's necessarily the point. Because as you think of the context, the context here in these verses is one of suffering. It's one of suffering. So that when people see your suffering and they look at you and they still see a hope, they might have some question. So it might look like this for you. You decide that you are going to meet up with your non-Christian friend and you sit on one side of the bench and they sit on the other side of the bench. And you are in tears because of your suffering. And your non-Christian friend sees your tears. And some Christians, they they get all hung up. Oh, I shouldn't cry in front of them because then, then I won't be witnessing the gospel. That's absolute rubbish. No, let them see your tears, right? And you sit beside them and they see your tears. And your pain and your suffering. But then they look at you. And they see that despite the tears and the pain and the suffering that you are going through. They see just the steady hope that you have. Despite all that. And then they ask you the question. How do you still have hope here? Where are you getting your 
peace from here. And then you say to them, let me tell you about my hope. Let me tell you about my Jesus, who gives me hope in all my suffering. Let me tell you about the one who one day will wipe away all my tears, not temporarily, but permanently. Let me tell you about the one who died on the cross for my sins, was buried, and on the third day rose again. Let me tell you of the fact that my sins are forgiven. You say to your friend, this hurts right now, all my suffering and my pain, it hurts right now, but I know my sin has been forgiven. And so when they ask, be prepared to give that answer of the hope that you have. When people see you suffering well, get ready to make a defense for, their, for the faith. Even when people are persecuting you, maybe it's not a friend sitting on the other side of the bench. Maybe it's another person insulting you and causing you harm. But when they're doing that, suddenly as they're causing you harm and insulting you, they still see a hope and a peace within you. And then they ask you the question, why don't you just give up? And you say to them, let me tell you about my hope. Let me tell you about my Jesus. So those are the types of answers we need to be ready with. We need to be ready with the hope that we have in Christ. And the second question we could ask about this, these answers is, is, what way are we to answer? Not only what are we to answer, what way are we to answer? And it says this, I'll so just look at this briefly. It says at the end of verse 15, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Christians, when we are being persecuted or pummeled with questions, or maybe someone's asking us the why, even in our suffering, never answer back with arrogance. Often Christians have a great deep level of arrogance when they're answering some of these questions. And that should never be the case. As Christians, we should always be humble in our answers, gentle and respectful in our answers. Let us not be self-conscious about the fact that we do not know certain things. Let us always be ready to give an answer for the hope and yet do it with gentleness and respect, knowing that this person is made in the image of God. They are logical thinkers and they know what they're at. And we give those answers with gentleness and respect. Oh, how often I've seen debates between a Christian and a non-Christian. And the Christian is acting worse than the non-Christian. There's no gentleness. There's no respect. It should never be the way with us. So those are the answers we're to give. That's the way we're to give the answers. But why are we to give those types of answers with gentleness and respect? Verse 16 says this. Having a, a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What I love about Peter is the reality that Peter is so honest 
in relation to what we are going to experience. Notice what he says in verse 16. When you are slandered. That's not if you are slandered. It is when you are slandered. And so all of us again and again, I'll say this. We need to be prepared. We need to get ready for this reality that people will insult us and that people will slander us. And the reason we need to go back with gentleness and respect is so that when those people do insult us and do slander us, eventually at the end of this verse, it says they will be put to shame. And it may be talking about the shame that they will experience in this earth. That's possibly true. Because as you react with good reactions, with gentleness and respect, slowly they might be ashamed of their slander and insult. I think that's true on this earth. But I also think it is true that throughout this letter, Peter is talking about the future. The future blessing, the future hope, and the future judgment. And what I think this is ultimately saying is that they may be put to shame. Eventually, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And those who are insulting you, your friends, your family, your co-workers, those who are insulting you, if they do not turn from Jesus, if they do not do not turn to Jesus and trust in Jesus on that final day, they will not get blessing, they will get shame. So that's what you need to remember. As you're being pummeled left, right and center, think about the answers you're to give. The type of answers is the hope. The way you answer is with gentleness and respect. And the reason for that type of answer is ultimately they will be put to shame. And so then Peter comes to his conclusion. Don't only think about the future or think about the holiness of Christ or or think about your answers. Think ultimately about the better thing. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. Think about the better thing as you're suffering. Don't think when someone persecutes you for being a Christian or insults you for being a Christian. Don't think of retaliation. Don't pull put evil for evil. Don't respond with evil to evil. Don't think of the greatest comebacks. Just to shame them on this earth. No. Do what is good. And suffer for doing what is good. Lay down your rights. And do the better thing. Think about doing the better thing. And you notice what he says. If it be God's will. It's hard to think about this reality. But you need to know that everything that happens in our lives, the sovereignty of the will of God is over that. Even our suffering, God is doing something. 
He is not doing nothing. He is doing something. James 1 tells us that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance, steadfastness and steadfastness, self-control and, and this idea of a mature life. It's one of the purposes for suffering is a mature life in Christ Jesus that you might be refined more and more to be like him. The other purpose in our suffering might be evangelistic. That people might see that you're just being pummeled on this earth again and again and again. And then they look at you and they say, what's wrong with you? Why are you responding in that way? Why do you have this peace and this hope that keeps you in this time? And you say to them, let me tell you about my Jesus. So the reason might be maturity or evangelism. The reason for our suffering also might be this. John Calvin talks about it this way. Let me, let me say it in a, in a shame way. He says suffering comes into this earth to you sometimes so that you will loathe your earthly life and long for the heavenly life. Maybe God is using this suffering in you that you're experiencing to teach you don't love this world. Love me and long for me. Ultimately, we don't know all the ins and outs, but we can know that God is doing something through suffering. God always does something through suffering. And we have no greater example than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Do you remember what he said in the garden? About God's will, he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And the Father's will was done. Through Christ's suffering. And without God's purpose in suffering, you and I would not have salvation. And so that is why Peter will go on to talk about the suffering of Christ Jesus as we come in the following weeks. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. God is always doing something through suffering. We can trust him in that. That he has a plan and a purpose. So let us think about our future blessing. Let us think about the holiness of Christ. Let us think about our answers. And let us think about doing the better thing. For that is God's will for you. I want us to respond uh, by singing in praise to the Lord. Now, why this fear and unbelief? And as we sing this together and sing our praises to him together, I'd like you to take this opportunity to share maybe verses in relation to suffering or or give us some thoughts or, or nuances in relation to that and, and Christ's death on the cross or whatever comes to your mind. And let us spend some time in reflection. But for now, let us sing together. Now, why this fear and unbelief?